I know nothing. <laughs> you do. Hello, I have the lovely Neil Dawes with me. Hi, Neil, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I am uh, Neil Dawes and I write as N.R. Dawes. Uh, I write a, a series of um, historical crime novels set in the Second World War, although that's only a, a backdrop to the stories. It's not the uh, the main part of it. It's, the, the crime is the main uh, aspect of it. He's behind me here. <clears throat> I come from a background of being in the civil service, but uh, 20 years of that was spent in security and counterterrorism. Tried to write a spy novel, uh, which didn't get very far for various reasons, including the fact that um, when I showed it to some of my colleagues, they said, you can't say that and you can't put that. So I decided to leave that one alone, uh, turn to crime, as it were. Um, and uh, a long and winding road led me to uh, a three book deal, which is uh, which is great. That was a lifelong ambition. So here we are. <laughs> so you always knew that you wanted to write eventually yes um <clears throat> i think it's my english teacher's fault uh mr sawyer at Lanfrank high school he uh as, as all english teachers do you know every now and again they, they set you a, a task an essay or they give you a title or something and then you have to come back with a story and uh, i was heavily into agatha christie stuff at the time i'd found during the summer holiday, previous summer holidays, uh, it was hammering down with rain. I had done all the puzzles and everything. And there was a book, um, I think it was The Mystery of the Blue Train by Agatha Christie. And I read that. I thought, well, okay, interesting. Then uh, there were a couple of other books around uh, the house, which was Agatha Christie's as well, and some other crime novels. Um, so when this particular essay came up, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write a crime one. So it was basically, uh, and then there were none. It was, I called it The Murders on the Island. I changed quite a lot, but, um, and I didn't get very far, obviously, because, you know, Agatha Christie book like that, essay, 1500 words or something. Um, but uh, I, I went into great detail describing how the butler came in and what the, uh, the lord of the mansion was doing. So I, uh, I gave that in. I can hear some other sound in the background. Is that you or me? Uh, it's probably a radio. I've turned it right down. But... Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm getting feedback here. Um, no, so uh, so I put in this um, this essay and I didn't think anything of it, you know, expecting a C minus or something. And uh, he actually read it out in class and said, that's how you that's how you do description. I thought, oh, and I was massively embarrassed. And I was looking around thinking everyone's going to take the mickey and, and they were all enthralled. I thought, I like this feeling. I don't get this with anything else. You know, I'm not the most popular guy in, in the class. You know, I'm not one of the, the, the elite clique, you know, all that kind of thing. But that, I liked that. So I thought I'd, I'd keep on at it. And of course, it never works out like that. Life gets in the way, careers get in the way, need for job and money and, and you know, uh, marriages and things. But I'd always written bits and pieces. And I read, uh, uh, my dad gave me some Alice McLean books, which I've still got on my shelf. And uh, they were kind of crime thrillers. And I thought, ah, oh, yeah, I really like these. That's what I want to write 
Uh, I wrote. I tried to write a film script. I tried to write um, <clears throat> theatre play script. I wrote some things for BBC Radio. There used to be a little blue booklet, and you you flick through it, and you go, "Oh, do this and do that," and you give them to there, and send it off to here, and all we had to go off in a little envelope, and then you waited about six months for it to come back, and with that, no, not for us, kind of thing. But, you know, you're learning your craft while you're doing this. And I kept cracking on with that. And uh, then obviously, <clears throat> well, not obviously, I started a, a pirate book, children's pirate book, set in a care home and or an orphanage, basically. And uh, the the people I sent it to sent it back saying, oh, no, we, you know, pirates have been done. And then out came Pirates of the Caribbean, Vampirates. My granny is a pirate. Um, is it Scientist Adventures with Pirate? All these things, other things. I thought, well, there you go. You were wrong. I was right. But never mind. Um, and the spy book, which has some of the elements in the spy book made its way into the Kemba and Hayes novels, including uh, Jonathan Kemba his name and the side there was going to be a, a male sidekick um then i decided it actually it needed to be female then she wasn't a sidekick she became more of an equal partner so that and then that kind of bled through into Cameron hayes when i started to write those um again not getting very far with the early drafts um sent out to a few publishers and got some nice feedback Yes, you can write, but this story is not right. <clears throat> then went to Curtis Brown Creative. I thought, I, I, I really, really, really wanted to fly in a Spitfire. So I was saving hard for that. And I'd got about half the money. And I saw this Curtis Brown Creative three months ago for Charlotte Mendelssohn. So I, I looked her up and thought, okay, yeah, well, her books do okay. She's a, a New York Times writer, you know, uh, you know, contributor, contributor. So, yeah. So I, I thought, damn it! I'll, you know, if this goes well, I can buy my own flight later on in a bit of fire. So I went to that and found my writing group, um, which now has it. Um, well, not now. There was fifteen of us, but we've got myself published. Uh, Lizzie Mary Cullen's doing various, um, she does kind of adult coloring books, but she's also doing some novels. Uh, the Last Beekeeper, which is by Saya Turabi. One that you love, I know, is uh, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Uh, one that's come out recently is, uh, oh, hold on, I'll have to get the cover. No, it's not that one. It's next door. It's by Elliot Sweeney. I think it's, oh, The Next to Die by Elliot Sweeney. So there's a number of us in that group <laughs> who have um, gone on to some success. But I mean, Bonnie's stratospheric. Um, but at the end of that, you you get a little gathering, you get a little kind of drinks party with the agents and uh, they all make encouraging noises, but then uh, nothing comes of it. Or, or, no. Maybe the lucky one or two. Uh, but then the rest of us gonna have to go out and fend for ourselves. But the, the writing group and, and the the agents were saying, well, it, it's good to get in a competition, see how it goes. 
so I had a rummage around. I'd already entered things for the bath competition and Yeovil and, and things like that. So uh, I found this one, which was the Blue Pencil Agency First Novel Award. Uh, you, you put the first, I can't remember how many words it was, 15,000, something like that. And then if you get through to the next stage, it's another 15,000. And then you, you kind of get through to the shortlist. And uh, I... I was highly commended, basically third. Um, and the the agent, one of the or the one of the judges was an agent, Nell, Nell Andrew of uh, PFD, as she was then. She's now of, of Rachel Mills Literary, yeah, RML. And she invited me up to the offices to have a chat. And uh, <clears throat> she was on my spreadsheet. Um, yeah, yes, yeah, so I. I Mickey taken out of me at your last event, uh, uh having <laughs> spreadsheets. Well, I am an ex civil servant, what can I say? Uh, yeah, there's a spreadsheet of all these uh different uh, agents and agencies and and you know who to send out to and and who and, and comments that came back and what have you. Um, and Nell was on the list, she was in the next tranche that I was going to send the thing out to in, anyway, but she said you know she invited me up to the offices had a chat and basically sold herself to me and I, and I thought well, you don't need to sell yourself to me shouldn't i be doing that to you but no it, uh, you know it's a it's a partnership they they want you as you much as as much as you want them so she uh she made her pitch and then i i did my pitch and then we agreed that actually it was going to be mutually beneficial if we joined forces and uh ended up with these which is brilliant <clears throat> so about basically my writing group and Nell made my writing dream come true. That's awesome. What an awesome story as well. And, you know, if I ramble, you can stop me at any time. I do ramble. I've been told this many times by my wife. Makes my life much easier. If you just carry on, that's fine. That's no problem. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so when you sat down to write, those three books or the first one did you know that you were going to set it in the second world war did you have your characters or did it kind of develop as you started writing well that in itself is another long rambling story <laughs> <laughs> um while i was writing the spy book you know as writers we kind of look at stuff and and um an article in the newspaper you'll cut out and put it in a scrapbook or now i've got papers and books and in drawers and everything all over the place um i should have a filing system really being a civil servant you know i've got spreadsheets but i can't put paperwork in order <clears throat> um but yeah so uh, uh one of these things that i found was uh in the um, one of the newspapers one of the tabloids uh it was an article about female top gun uh fighter uh women fighter pilots in afghanistan flying fast jets and i thought oh tear it out stick it in a scrapbook that'll be um that'll be uh possibly a good thing to even for a short story short story uh you know women flying fast jets that's 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 pretty awesome so uh that's that got that got filed away uh but i'd I talk all the time to my family. Oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, this is my story. I got stuck on that because talking it through, through, even if they don't res respond, I suddenly go, ah, oh, okay, thank you for that. And then I go <laughs> off because I've solved it. 
Uh, so my mother-in-law, who lives in the, the granny annex uh, next door, she had seen this thing, and uh, in her woman's weekly magazine was another female pilot called Joy Lofthouse, who is there. That that painting there um, is a painting made done from a photograph which appears on the, uh, one of the books that I've got uh, about the air transport auxiliary. And, and this was all about her. I mean, she was a lot older then. She was about 92, I think she was, 92, 93 at the time. Uh, and it told the story of her as a, as a young woman as she went into the air transport auxiliary kind of midway through the war because of her age. Uh, and then some stories about um, what she did and what they were about. I thought, I've never heard of the air transport auxiliary. So I did a bit of research into that, went off to um, May. Maidenhead, which is where the uh, ATA Museum is. Um, got some more information. And uh, thought, yeah, okay. That's that's the story. Not fighter jet female pilots, but pilots in the Second World War. Mix that in with a detective. I mean, my dad used to buy me thing, books like Biggles. But W.E. Johns wrote couple of others as well one called Gimlet and another one called Worrell or Worrell and Worrell was uh, an air transport auxiliary pilot I try, I've, they must have been thrown out um, when, my, when my dad died and when we moved and everything because I can't find them now but I'm going to have to get hold of these online again because they were they, I mean probably now reading, reading them they would be not as interesting as, as I found them at the time, uh, but my memory of them were that they were really exciting stories. Um, and this Warrell woman, she went all over the place, taking these planes all over the place. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, I can set these in all in different areas, different airfields, and, you know, she can fly off and do stuff. But I still wanted a, a detective story. And she couldn't be a detective because if she was in the air transport auxiliary, she was just a pilot. Um, women in the police force were few and far between, and you know they they might be brought in to be filing or something like that. But most of the time, there were there were no female police officers. You're not detectives. But then uh, you know, rummaging around as I do in magazines and things, I came across this woman called Beatrice Edgell, who was a I think she was the first female PhD for psychology, but she had to go abroad to do it. But then she, when she came back to Britain, she went to, I think it was Brentford College, which was part of University College London. And I thought, shall I use her? But no, she wasn't a pilot. So, but I thought, ah, oh, okay, what I'll do is I'll make Lizzie Hayes this pilot. But her background will be that she was a, a PhD, taught by Beatrice Edgehill. She, or Edgehill, she would have all this uh, background of going to Oxford Prison and doing research into criminology. So she would basically be a female profiler at a time when not only were females not police officers, but profiling was not a thing. I know you've got Sherlock Holmes and people like that who they say were the early profilers, but, you know, in reality, there weren't any. OK, that's one character. Then I bought Jonathan Kemba, the spy, forward, or, or took him back in time, really, and uh, thought, he right, he's my detective. 
I'm going to give him a bit of a dodgy background. So he's been he's been seconded away from the Met Police for some dodgy incident and back to his home force of, of Kent in Tunbridge. And um, I needed a pathologist. So I thought, okay, well, if I do that to the pathologist as well, there's something in their background that, you know, that's not the most. So that'll give them this kind of a, a mysterious kind of uh, aura to them. And so he's sent to this uh, this little village, not really wanting to, to get involved in this kind of stuff, but um, there's nobody else. I found a, a lovely little snippet um, to Bernard Spilsbury, who was the home office, the home office pathologist of the, of the day. You know, his word was law back then. Um, if he said it was so, then it was so, and nobody would check the facts. Uh I thought, oh, okay, well, he went to a place quite near to where my story set, Brinchley. And there was a triple murder there. So he went there. The Tunbridge pathologist went there. So I thought, oh, okay, well, if, if I set it up right at that time, they'll all be over there with all the manpower, which would mean that's why my out-of-favour detective gets this case. And he has to go there on his own. He meets the local Bobby. Uh, Lizzie Hayes comes roaring in on her motorbike and um, gets sent on her way. So he's got the ump with her for being a, um, uh, you know, a rubbernecker. And uh, she's got the ump with him because he's another bloke who just said, sod off. So they don't get off on the best foot. Um, so, yeah, so it, it had to be historical because of the air transport auxiliary. I wanted her to be his um counterpoint and also foil and but also bring a different aspect so he's got this kind of all oh, right cop law legal this is the way it's done brain and she's got this that kind of thing so she'll go off and go oh thinking oh yes but and ah oh, but it must be and therefore haha and he'll, he'll get and he'll get to it by abc but they'll come together at the end and it all kind of goes Ah, right. So it must be true then. So that's how it came about. All because I saw, all because I saw this article in the in the newspaper, and then my mother-in-law found um, the other article. And actually, I went to I I met Joy Lofthouse uh, in uh, in Shoreham in Kent, not the the one where there was an air crash. There's a, a, a Battle of Britain museum. You can miss you can you can walk along this little street. It's just like a little village lane, uh, and you miss it. But just up the steps and along a, a little path is this uh, a couple of huts that are together, and inside they've got tons of Battle of Britain stuff that they've um, they've gathered from around the area that they've been donated. Um, some stuff that's not from the area, but it all pertains to the, the battle that took place over over Kent. Um, and she was, they, they had, or well, they still have, I think, um, wartime personalities, I suppose you call them, you know, pilots and engineers and, and you know, photographic officers and all those kind of thing, people. And she was doing a talk there shortly after my mother-in-law found that um, article. So I went along and that's where I got the painting. That's And it's signed by her. Hello. So uh, I went to... Uh, Went to to see, and obviously there was a few people around, and they got the thing signed, and they were all chatting. Um, 
but I kind of circled around and went through the museum again. And when I came back, she was signing the last book and she was still sat there. So I got another half an hour with her, which is brilliant. Because she was telling me stories like, um, I mean, the one that sticks in my mind, I've got them kind of jotted down in various places. But the one that sticks in my mind is that uh, I said to you, you know, did you, because you know, I was thinking, you know, a female on an air base, not really wanted there. Um, I'd read other stuff um, where, whereby, you know, they, they weren't treated that brilliantly all the time. Um, and if they were, the men wanted something out of them sex mainly um so she said no no it didn't really get any misogyny or, or or sexism um which was lovely uh and uh she said actually when um the, the americans were brilliant and and you know much more accommodating than the british airfields and she said if we ever we were up and we had to get down for any reason whether the weather closed in or there was uh a threat from other fighters or fuel or the engine could they because they were because they were flying good planes to the front to be used again or beating up planes back to the factories to to be repaired if anything went wrong and they had to land she said she'd always look for an american airbase because if you landed at a british one you were given a cup of tea and a biscuit if you landed at the American airbase, they'd all flock around you. They'd all be giving you compliments. They'd giving you nylons and chocolate and uh, taking you away to have real coffee and all this kind of thing. So she always wanted to land at an American airbase. <laughs> wow, how interesting. <laughs> awesome. Um, if you were to have to make a cameo, if your books were made into a film, which character would you play? <clears throat> oh, my goodness. <laughs> a cameo. Um, that's really difficult. I don't know. I mean, I, I have got a, a hat like Kimber's. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, I'm too old for, to play Kemba. Uh, I don't know. I'd probably play one of the the guys in the pub who take the Mickey out of um, of the sergeant. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fun. I, I, I commotion the old git in the corner with his with his pint of uh, stout <laughs> playing dominoes. Going, eh, I remember you when you were a little when you were a nipper. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can kind of see that actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you hide any secret jokes, messages, or Easter eggs in your books? Jokes, messages, and Easter eggs. Um, no, I don't. Um, but there, well, there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, um, if the Kimber and Hayes series had, had become a longer series, there were bits that I'd seeded in the first three that I could have brought back later on um, to form another story, a, a different arc. But uh, yeah, the, the deal was only for three books, but I thought I'll, I'll put them in there just in case. I mean, they fit anyway. The whole Everything fits and, and is relevant to each story and the arc of the three stories. But uh, if they'd gone on for longer and if they do go on for longer, then there are bits and pieces in there that I can bring back and everyone will go, 
I don't remember that. And then I have to look back at the first thing. Oh, yeah, there it is. So there's that. Um, but uh, there's something else which is kind of a, a little bit sad in that the, the character of uh, James Corcoran, Jimmy Corcoran, is a real name, a real person. Um, it was uh, my friends and I from school. We go out on hikes. You know, we still we see each other. You know, we've been friends for fifty years. But unfortunately, he kind of had um, some some serious issues. And about three years ago, he took his own life. And I was trying to think of a way. I mean, I was writing. Well, I was quite a, a way into um, quite a place to kill at the time. And uh, we're all thinking, you know, what what kind of memorial what kind of way can we remember him i mean we remember him in our hearts anyway but we wanted to i wanted to do something different and we were thinking of you know because we like hiking we wanted to do to perhaps do a or, or have a plaque on a style or, or a kissing gate out in the countryside that we can go and visit every now and again uh, another idea was one of the pubs that we used to visit that we started some walks on to see if they would um, except a, a, a tree, an oak tree or a fruit tree. I mean, it's all quite expensive and it involves getting permissions off of other people. And I mean, the kissing gate thing is about two and a half thousand pounds to have that done, just to have a plaque on there. Because basically they want to raise money to to keep the countryside up. So, but, um, so, uh, I mean, I had this these characters and I wanted a, a village ensemble if you like so you've got you know, mrs garner the kind of head of the gossip circle and you've got the sergeant and you've got the cafe owner that he's uh or yeah that he's kind of attracted to as well um you've got the uh the old world war one uh guy with the dog um who finds the, the first body so i thought you know obviously you're gonna have to have a postman there so and um, James was a postman. So although the character in the book isn't James at all in, in terms of what he does and, and how he behaves and like and how in his appearance, um I thought a nice way to, to memorialize him would be to just change that character's name to James Corcoran. Yeah. And I can't remember what name he was originally now, but I know that I then put I think I used that character's name in being book two. So names are never wasted. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you choose character names? Ah, that's very well. Apart from James, obviously, um, I went through quite a, a genesis with the first two because um, the, the the spy, the the the, uh, the female in the in the spy novel was called Jenna Hutton, uh, and that didn't fit with the Second World War. Uh, but Jonathan Kemba was the spy, and I tried. <clears throat> I tried another name. I tried to be clever and called him um, Tangram, which is a, a Chinese picture puzzle where you fit shapes together. And I thought, oh, when you go into a crime scene, you're seeing this picture puzzle. That'd be good. And there were, um, Tangram is a name. There there were a few Tangrams around at the time. Not many, but I looked at the census and they were there. But um, people along the way said, no, nah, it doesn't sound quite right. And I said, okay, well, how about if I call him and I just changed it to Jonathan Kember? And all, everyone suddenly went, yes, that's the person. Um, Lizzie was, uh, oh, I can't remember her second name now, but she, I think she had a double-barreled name. 
And no, 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 she had, it was Rawlingson. Um, and people, ah, oh, Rawlingson doesn't quite sound right. So then I went through, I, I asked loads of people and I was asking my wife and we had loads of them written down. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, well, the way that she um, does her thinking is that she she does what I was accused of at school quite a lot, was which was daydreaming. Um, I, and obviously daydreaming is done with your eyes open. And when I when I'm writing, if I want to see a scene, I don't close my if I close my eyes, I, I lose everything. I can't see anything, literally. But if I keep my eyes open and just kind of relax a bit, I get this kind of waking daydream where I can see the scene pl being played out and then I can type it down. It sounds nutty, but there you go. Um, certifiable, but... <laughs> Not <laughs> I mean, for an author. Anything no, no, goes an author. with authors. Yeah, whatever you sound. It's like, yeah, that sounds perfectly reasonable. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, and uh, um, do you remember those magic eye books where you had the picture, but if you relaxed your eyes and saw through the picture, you could see... Oh, I, I get those like that. My wife can't get them at all. Um, I do have a trouble with if they're blue, slightly blue coloured. It takes me a bit longer. Any other colour, any other pattern, I get them straight away. And I'm standing in front of these. There was a shop uh, where I used to um, work and uh, had this big poster and me and some other co work colleagues were around it. And I'm going, well, you can can't you see it's a dolphin. And they're going, don't be, there's nothing there. Look, it's a dolphin. Um, and of course, you can't show them what it looks like because you have it's your perception because that's the picture and that's your eye but you've got to focus here and in focusing there everything else here comes into a different focus and i thought that's what lizzie hayes is doing when she's thinking about these things um and so days hayes i thought ah oh, that's her surname so they were, that's the way those two came about. But all the other characters, well, it used to be the phone book, didn't it? Yeah, you go through the phone book. But now um, it's going through the cast list in the Radio Times or um, looking at the books on the on the shelf at the back here and I'm kind of looking around. And, and if I've got a magazine, I flick through to see who the articles are by. I never take one particular name. Uh, it's always, I think, oh, that's a good surname. And then I'll take a first name. Um, but with the, with because this is the Second World War, you have to think. Okay, well, if they're around thirty in nineteen forty, they've got to be born in nineteen ten. What's the what's the nineteen ten popular names? So then you have to go back for that, and then people like Mrs. Garner, uh, who's a bit older than that, you have to go back into the previous century sometimes, uh, which are you know, completely different names. Uh, <laughs> But surnames don't change a great deal. Um, they're, they've been around for donkey's years. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the way it's done. It's kind of a part inspiration, part mix and match, part tearing the rest of my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> One of my uh, author friends used to use the Chelsea um, football team, mix up their names for his characters. <laughs> well, that said, um, Kemba... <clears throat> was originally named after Steve Kemba, who was a Crystal Palace forward. He got sold to Chelsea in his best years, and he came back when he was a bit of a has-been. So, but he did manage Palace for a while as well. So, yeah. 
So there, there may be some other footballers that make their way in there, you know, later on. <laughs> um, which of your characters do you have most fun writing, and which gives you most trouble? <clears throat> um, the most fun, uh, most fun writing is is Lizzie, I think, uh, because as I say, this kind of daydreaming thing, I I can do that. And then when you know she's right, you know she's right about all this stuff um, about you know just her mind going off at tangents, which mine does quite a bit, as you can probably tell from this interview. Uh, so yeah, I, I can I can write. I, I try and aim for somewhere in the region of a thousand or or twelve hundred words a day. Uh, any less than that, I'm a bit disappointed. Any more than that, and I have to go back and see if it's rubbish or not because I think, how can I write that much? But when I do Lizzie Hayes scenes, it just kind of flows, and I, I love that. The one that gives me uh, make uh, most difficult, um, I think, probably well, the, the villains. I mean, although the villains are nice to to write, uh, I tend to make people a lot nicer than they should be. So I have to kind of stick in a bit of evil there. <laughs> I mean, I, I, my, my friends might say different, but I don't think I'm naturally evil. So I have to kind of dredge the the depths of, of, of my soul to, to try and get some of that in there. But that's quite difficult to do. And also because you're trying to, because um, in the books, I, I, I'm not in their heads. Uh, I'm trying to make them say and do stuff. I mean, if you, if you on television, they can do something surreptitiously. You know, they can just kind of pull their ear or 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 get something off a shelf. But if you're describing that in a book, you're drawing attention to it straight away, and it's diff it's much harder to conceal and 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 hide that kind of thing. So I I find that a lot more difficult. Um, but another character I do like uh, is the. Um, yeah, oh, he's, he's uh, I should have read my own books before I did this interview. Uh, Artson, uh, Chief Inspector. Uh, he uh, <laughs> he's based on a few bosses I've had in the past, uh, not one in particular. Uh, he's um, he's an amalgamation of, of three, maybe four, a uh, bit curmudgeonly, a uh, bit by the book sometimes. Um, when it comes to uh, personal stuff, I mean, there's one particular boss who, you know, if she said, oh, you know, I, I might need time off because of whatever it is, you know, some kind of family problem, you know, yep, yep, go, go. Wouldn't want to know. And uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so when, uh, uh, when, some, when, when my character has got some issues, he, he doesn't mean, no, I don't want to know about that. You know, you know oh, oh, really? I, because he's he's going through this divorce and and what have you. Um, Kimber doesn't. Uh, well, Kimber tries to say talk to him about it, and he's going, "Oh, no, don't want to know. Don't want to know. Go away." So that's based on one of my bosses. Um, but oh, it's obviously an amalgamation, and that's quite that's quite fun. I'd I'd like to. I mean, he he doesn't he does make a bigger appearance. Um, in number two, um. But uh, I'd like to have, I'd, if, if the series was to carry on, I'd like to give him a bigger part in another one, but uh, we'll have to see how that goes. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I hope they continue because I loved, I mean, I've only read the third one, but I absolutely loved it. So well, yeah, I understand, understand that you made the same mistake as, because quite a lot of other people uh, make that um, they see the uh, Spitfire or something on the front and the, the war background and think it's going to be a war story. And I, I really didn't want them to, I wanted the war as part of it, obviously, because <clears throat> even when you've got a um, a contemporary crime novel or whatever, or a thriller, there are events happening in the background that impact or colour what's going on in your story. But just whatever story it is, whether it's a love story or a, or a thriller or crime or, or even science fiction, whatever's in the foreground, the rest of it's in the background, unless you want that particular event to be the focus of the story. So, you know, if it's, I was on the telly yesterday or a couple of days ago, you know, the, the Trump and the riots. If you want that to be a main feature of what's happening to your characters, then obviously that comes to the fore. But with mine, I wanted it then because obviously I'd, I'd found the, the female pilot that I wanted, Joy Lofthouse. I thought that's a good era to set it. Um, there's no forensics as such, although forensic does start to make an appearance um, with Luminol, which was right at the beginning of its its use. And, you know, it's really kind of in the experimentation time with the with Scotland Yard. And my guys coming from Scotland Yard, new people there, so they kind of dragged that in with them. Um, there are there Obviously, there are things like fingerprints and, and that kind of thing, but you can't just send stuff off to the lab and get some kind of DNA analysis. You can't ring them up on the mobile phone. You know, um, I mean, in 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 the first one, I describe a phone call where you have to get you have, you get three minutes. I mean, in my early days, you used to go to the phone box, put your coin in, and then the pips would go, and then you had to quick keep feeding with the coins. But back in the Second World War, you know, there, there were phone boxes, but it was a case of um, if you were ringing from one place to another. It would go through a, 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 I'll say a manned exchange, but mainly it was women that were on the exchange, especially in the villages. You had the village postmistress who would stick the pins in various places and then listen in because she was a gossip. Um, so you never knew who was listening. Even on a secure line, there was always somebody there listening. And you always got these three minutes and what have you. And uh, then you say, also in the war, they limited it to very few conversations of three minutes because wartime stuff needed to be prioritized so this limited capacity for the british network to take calls um was given over to, to military use so you know, civilians you see you know, on the on the telly on the films they're, they're ringing everybody willy-nilly but you know sometimes you had to book a call because there wasn't the capacity and there are party lines as well where you had to share a main line, but two separate lines. So, I mean, even when I was younger, and I could still remember my phone number from the time, um, the first three digits were based on the area. So my I lived in a place called Spring Park. So it's SPR, and SPR on the dial, because each number had a, a, some letters, was SPR. So SPR was 777. Oh, yeah, of course. So my <laughs> 777-8580 was my number. <laughs> so I remember that because of Spring Park. But we, but then we had a party line. So you'd pick it up 
you have to listen because if somebody else was already talking on the line you had to put it down or if you're one of those people that likes listening in you didn't you just listen <laughs> but if you were on a call and you, you heard a click everything went silent because then you'd listen for the breathing at the other end to see if somebody else was listening in your conversation so back in the second world war it was even worse because people were legitimately you know sticking their headphones on and sticking pins in here and there and listening in and saying oh you've got three minutes you that's the end of your three minutes so all that kind of limitation on what you could do what you could say to people how you could say it the communications uh you know, the postie on his bike you know there's no certainly in rural places they didn't have vans they you know cycling everywhere in all weathers um the baker might even not have a van you know they might just have a bicycle with a basket on the front so getting around communication travel uh, although there were trains again military use came first so if that train was being used by a military train then the 635 was cancelled kind of thing so so I I liked all of that kind of background and limitation. But at the foreground is this, this uh, relationship between a guy who's been trained to be a, a logical detective and uh, Lizzie Hayes, whose own innate strange abilities uh, go against everything that he has been taught. Um so yeah so so that's what i wanted that that thing so the war in the background but you know you and many others make the make the uh the wrong assumption that if there's a spitfire on the front it's got to be shoot them up i mean there is some shoot them up as well i mean there's bombs raining all the time but that means evidence is destroyed or they have to kind of hold off the investigation for a while or as in as in one of the books the the villagers get really upset because all the bombs are raining down and then there's killer on the loose and so but uh set against village life as well which was part you shut me out at any time <laughs> no <laughs> um my mother-in-law comes from a little village called east hagborn and uh you know the village life certainly in a very very small village everyone knows everyone's business everyone which is Sometimes a good thing because you can come together in times of crisis. But when there is no crisis, they kind of tend to create their own. Uh, boredom gets in the way and then they start, oh, oh, yeah, but have you seen? And what about, oh, that's not very good, is it? And uh, how about, which is where Ethel Garner comes in. Uh, so this is where I'm pulling all these elements in for, from. And it works. I mean, honestly, I, I read the, the third one because I think there was a blog tour, wasn't there? Yes. And um, I read it for the blog tour and immediately wanted to go read the first two. So, yeah, if people get past that, which I will try and encourage them, then they're just, it was just awesome. So, yeah. Well, the, the third one was a, a slight departure from the first. The first one was almost exclusively in the in the village and the air station. Uh, the the second one uh, kind of spreads out a little bit. They have to go over to the, uh, the docks, Chatham Dockyard, which is not far from where I live um for some more investigation uh and then there's the the third one i thought i'll take them completely out of that but still in that kind of cozy crime closed atmosphere because i'd seen that 
You know, I, I'd read that Kent had a, a coal mining industry, and I never knew that. So I did a little bit of investigation into that, and there is a coal miners' trail uh, in um, in um, East Kent, uh, which is kind of going to rack and ruin now. The the sign boards and and notices and, and information boards are kind of not being upkept, and the, and the path isn't being upkept. But it, it's still there; you can still follow it, and there are hills and things uh, all around there, and and uh, old coal mine buildings my brother actually lives um on an estate that was built or that was extended uh, and it's the site of the old accommodation for um chislet colliery uh, and chislet it's the same as everywhere else you know there's there's kind of footings and things where the, the, the shape of the buildings but other places there are still buildings in place Another place is Bettersanger, which is uh, has got a museum there now. Oh, well, that's very interesting. So uh, I went up to um, the National Museum up north, the Mining Museum, and uh, went down for an underground tour, and, and my brother and I looked around there, and uh, there's, there's two pits. There's the Hope Pit, and there's the, I can't remember what the other one's called now, but, but there's two, uh, one's older than the other. Uh, but you can go down one, you can have this tour all the way around, and they show you the the, the old style of mining and what have you. And the the, the guy there, uh, whose nickname's called Big Bird, because he was a really big chap, and he wore this kind of yellow fluorescent, so they called him Big Bird after Sesame Street. <laughs> And he would be going, oh, yes, and we used to do this, and and, and our shift used to be that, and uh, we used to use these things to do this. And and I'd go, uh, carbon monoxide, how quickly does that kill you down here? <laughs> uh, how long could you go without an air supply? And, and all this kind of thing. And uh, I had to tell him at the end, and the, the rest of the group that we were in, that um, actually I, I was a, a writer and uh, setting my next book in a coal mine because uh he, he just thought i was a psychopath <laughs> um, but uh but obviously from that um <laughs> the story came because i thought oh yeah if i can if i could put this in a fictional coal mine in an area where there were coal mines in kent so not far from where my uh my people are stationed uh, and if i can then cut it off by bringing in the storm and i, I looked on, on i've got a completely anal really i've got um apps for what's on what was on the radio at whatever time of, in 1940 <laughs> what the weather was like um you know all this kind of stuff and um what the news was and it turned out that the that in the period that i've set book three there was some quite heavy snowfall so I thought, oh right okay well, I'm, I'm gonna tweak up the snowfall a little bit cut them off in this coal mine um, and there's so there you, you know nobody can come to the the rescue they've got to do it all on their own and uh, yeah so that uh, I saw a, it still conforms to the cozy crime element I suppose insofar as it's a closed environment with a limited number of characters but where there are several suspects and I I, I enjoyed that I quite uh, I found that fun <laughs> yeah well it's awesome so <laughs> glad. <laughs> Um, if you were able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? Um, I think Alice McLean. Um, when I was asked 
um, that previous festival, which author I, I kind of liked and, and admired, and I said, Alistair McLean, there were a few blank looks around the room and there were a few kind of, oh, well, why haven't you chosen, I don't know, uh, C.S. Lewis or, or you know, Ian Fleming or whoever. <clears throat> and it's because because in my formative years, my, my dad gave me, um, you know, I could see these books on his shelf and he said, oh, no, they're not for you yet. Not because there was anything... Uh, crude or, or or anything like that in them but because he didn't think that at that time my understanding wouldn't have i wouldn't have got the appreciation out of them um so eventually he said oh, okay you, know, you want to read them and i've all right got them here should have them somewhere no not behind there They're around somewhere they're on there somewhere there's no filing system as you can see uh, <laughs> apart from the colin dexters we're, we're a box set <laughs> uh. um yeah it was alistair mclean so it, the first one that i got to read was uh, bear island uh which is um a, a contemporary thriller or contemporary at the time it was written contemporary thriller about um nazi gold on an air on a, an island a real island called bear island north of spitzbergen and uh, there's a submarine base there, a dis abandoned submarine base where some of this Nazi gold has been hidden. So it's, it's these characters going up there and, and trying to to recover that, and all the kind of backstabbing and uh, certain characters aren't who they are supposed to be. And I, I loved all that kind of. Mm. Um, so then I read HMS Ulysses, which was his first one, uh, which was about him on the Russian convoys. Which was a lot more war time factual. Uh, but, but when you say Alison McLean, people go, Oh, who's he? Well, um, Bear Island was made into a film, a rubbish film, actually, but it was made into a film. Um, Guns of Navarone, Force 10 from Navarone, Satanbug, um, Fear is the Key. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, Where Eagles Dare. I mean, half of his books half the books that he wrote in his lifetime were made into films and in fact um i think i think it might have been where eagles dare he'd already had a couple of films uh, maybe not where eagles dare but anyway he had a couple of his books made into films and he's he started to write in filmic terms so he would write thinking oh this is going to be turned into a script so we need an action piece here and an action piece there so his later books are a little bit more contrived, but his early books are really tightly plotted. And, and you know, Where Eagles Dare, uh, the book, um, obviously everyone thinks the books are better than the film, but I think the, the film captured the book very well. That, that essence of, uh, of jeopardy and double crossing and you don't know who's who you don't know who's the good guy who's the bad guy until right to the end and the guy that you thought was actually the good guy is actually the one that's working against you and, and so i loved all of that and i i've got his uh autobiography here somewhere where he he talks his way or he, he writes his way through what his writing process was and how he came up with all these ideas and I'd, I'd just love to get him in a room and just spend all day you know with, i was gonna say with loads of food but that's because i'm a glutton 
um, <laughs> loads of food and drink, and just saying, "Oh yeah, but why, how did you do that? And what did you? And why? How did you think of that? And why did you put that in? And because, yeah, because I, I loved his books. So yeah, Alistair McLean, <laughs> an unusual choice, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's different, so why not? <laughs> um, and if you're able to travel to any period of time, either forwards or backwards, where would you go? Oh, I've just got to pick one. You can pick a few if you want. Um, well, I'm a big um, Star Wars, Doctor Who, um, and Star Trek fan. So to go forward in time to see whether the technology that's on Star Trek now comes to fruition. I mean, back in the 1960s, they had um, flip-up communicators and that kind of thing. And then when they did the second, you know, the next generation, they had touch screens and all this was kind of, it was, it was a possibility, but nobody had done it. And then eventually when, I don't know whether you remember when they came out with mobile phones, there was one called the Star Tag, which was a flip up phone. So all the Star Trek fans got those because you could flip it open and use it like a communicator. <laughs> um but yeah, so there's there's lots of stuff in sci-fi films where, and like time travel and, and uh, transporter beams where I'd like to go forward in time to see whether they actually get to do it. But um, the, the I suppose the two periods that most intrigue me about the past is the Second World War because when I was younger, most of my family had lived through it not just been born there. I mean, my dad was about 10 years old and he he told me the story of um, of when uh, Croydon Airport was attacked in the Battle of Britain. Um, and uh, I'm not sure whether it's spit for a hurricane now. I think it was, a, I think it might have been a hurricane, but um, uh, one of the British planes was chasing a Messerschmitt along the length of the, of the or just straight down the road. Uh, and at the end of this road is a, was a, uh, a phone box and a police box like Doctor Who. Uh, but it's just made of plywood, basically, you know, four by two and plywood with a emergency telephone in there. You know, you, you get a, a whole hail of bullets and you'd be dead anyway. But this, he, my dad was there looking up, watching this thing coming towards him with bullets uh, kicking tarmac off the, off the road as it missed the plane. And this big, burly, hairy, police officer's hand came out got his collar and pulled him into the police box um and he had a whole host of stories about that so i'd like to go back and see for myself what it was like i mean that people tell a lot of fun stories about it but the nightly fear of being bombed in the early days um I, I, you know, obviously people in ukraine are getting that now in war zones but us in britain apart from a few terrorist incidents we don't get that so I'd like to go back and see what it was really like. But beyond that, um, well, the film film script and one of my early attempts at a book was set in the time of King Richard I. Um, you know, the, the Third Crusade and uh, Richard the Lionheart and King John and uh, Magna Carta and all of that. So that, that early medieval period. Um, a friend of mine is... is completely obsessed with the Tudor period uh, which again is interesting but 
you know, technology's moved on and society's moved on by then. But back in the medieval times, it was just a case of you disagree with somebody, you got your sword out. Um, <clears throat> yeah. You know, fights in the pub now, fisticuffs. In London and other inner cities, the youngsters are getting the knives out. But back then, if you didn't have a knife, you were a weirdo, really. Um, and if you could afford it, you had a sword. But if you had a sword, you had to know how to use it. Um, villagers um, tended not to have daggers or, or swords, but they still had knives. So, you know, if raiders came, you know, if if bandits of whatever time, of, of a kind of robbers or whatever it was came to either burn their village down, nick their crops or, or take away their cattle, they would go out with knives and pitchforks and stuff like that. So two different aspects of of, uh, of society, the people, the haves that have got access to weapons, which even though they were swords, and I didn't realize this, you know, people did hone their swords so that you could cut. But most of the time, people died of um, broken bones caused by bludgeoning. So uh, the, um, the sword that you know okay it would cut your flesh but it would break the bone and what you would do is you wouldn't die of the of the wound per se you'd die of blood loss you'd die of the infection that came after it um not painting a nice picture of that period really but no yeah. well that's why, really... <clears throat> that's why i wouldn't want to go back give me my sanitation and my antibiotics thank you very much <laughs> oh i wouldn't want to stay there i mean yeah. you know you know uh, flitting in and out like doctor who you know um you know go back for a, a little while and then escape at the uh, early sign i'm a complete coward so <laughs> sign of trouble i'll be off <laughs> good yeah. idea i'd be the guy at the back <laughs> urging those with swords to go forward <laughs> yeah that's it you get him going off yeah. yeah you yeah you go get, i'll cook you something when you get <laughs> yeah uh, but um yeah that's no, fascinating time because you know king richard the first was um a, was a, a king in absentia for a large period you know he I think he was only here for, I might have got this wrong. He was only here for six months of the of his reign or something. He, he, he came here, he was crowned, went off the Crusades. He did stuff in France because he had the, the, the French lands were, a lot of the French lands were. were um, and then uh, his errant brother, King John, who actually did a lot of good. Um, he's been a bit maligned by, uh, by history. Um, everyone thinks you know he was jealous of his brother, but when he actually became king, he wasn't too bad. Oh, yes, he got hauled over the coals and, and Magna Carta and all that, but actually, he did a lot of reforms in the law uh, before that. Um, and in in society in general, so he wasn't as bad a king as, as he's made out, um, against you know, against the kind of uh, gung ho leadership of his uh, his older brother. Um, but yeah, I'd love to go back and have a, just have a rummage around because I like castles and stuff. Um, if, I, if, if ever we go on our walks and there's a castle, that's where we're going to go. If uh, I've I've um, I've spoken to other people about this, that, you know, they're not they're not beach people. They go away with the family and they're laying on a beach. They might stick it for an hour. Uh, they might stick it for an hour and a half if there's a nice long cool beer there involved. But behind them on the hill over there is a ruined castle and it's always in your mind uh 
yeah what who, who was in there you built it and i going off subject here now but i went um uh, we visited my, my family visited some other friends in cyprus and uh from limassol they did a trip out to i can't remember the name of the port now but it was a port in syria when it was peaceful there um and so we um my wife and i went on this kind of overnight trip you, you overnight there day trip around and then overnight back on the ship uh and you got taken to a place called crack de chevalier which is a crusader castle but very interesting that you know the the, the winners in a war or, or, in, or in history write the history i've learned about the fact that you know this was held by the crusaders by the knights templar <clears throat> and um to protect the pilgrim routes from from the north through turkey down into the holy land but when you get there and you get the guide the english guidebook that they've written it's written from the muslim perspective and then you realize that actually the crusaders didn't build the castle the muslims built the castle to protect their own lands from invaders and what have you and that um the or the uh, the knights templar all they did was kind of added a few bits bit like the Nazis in the Second World War. They would take over, I mean, I don't know whether you've ever been there, Jersey. Have you been to Jersey? No. <clears throat> there's a little island out in the bay called Elizabeth Island, and on there is Elizabeth Castle. Um, and, and obviously every castle's got various periods of, of additions to it. You get the old medieval, then you get a bit added, then you get kind of Jacobean Georgian or whatever on the top of it. And then right at the top always there's a, a concrete bunker or, or lookout post which was put there by the Nazis uh, and that's like crack to chevalier muslims built it it crumbled a bit they added a bit more they you know, there's a bit of a siege they built a bit more along come the uh knights templar put a few bits on the top and say that's his ours and then everyone thinks they've built it so yeah so uh so that's the, the periods really second world war um richard the lionheart era and if I can have a third, a couple of hundred years in the future to see if we still got if we've got transporter beams sorted. <laughs> oh, I'd love to go to that place. I mean, obviously not possible, but that sounds so fascinating. We when we went to Cyprus, we went across to Egypt, which was obviously awesome. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't like because there were people trying to sell you stuff around the pyramids, and it's just exhausting. So. But, you know, seeing them and the Sphinx, we went to a papyrus factory and we went to a museum with all the the stuff. It was just mind-blowing. And to think that they'd done that, you know, I think, I mean, I'm not very tall, but I think one brick of a pyramid was my height or taller than me. <laughs> so they're <laughs> absolutely massive. So, yeah, but we didn't get to go in there. I think we went in November and I think they'd closed them. So. Oh, I've been a couple of times, actually. Um, <laughs> second time was with my daughter's school. Um on a kind of a red tree red sea cruise thing um because i was a parent governor so i went uh, i wheedled my way onto that trip <laughs> nice I, I started to pay but i kind of went i'm a governor i need to know how these trips are done so I'll come <laughs> but i had been many years before with uh, my wife before we were married we went out there and uh, we did um cairo and then we did a, a nile tour all the way down to the aswan dam and a trip south to uh, Abu Simbel. Um, I was as sick as a dog for four days. I got the biggest 
Like, what I don't know what is it in Egypt. It's in India. It'd be called Delhi Belly. Yeah, the Egyptian version of whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, nice. I can't think of one, but it's a rude one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, pyramids and you know, the people selling stuff, pushing stuff into your hand and saying, "Oh, this is a present. This is a present." Yeah, and then demand. Oh no, I don't want that. Thank you very much. Oh, you are. You are insulting my country. Oh, all right, I'll take it then. Okay, uh, five American dollars. No, I don't want it. Oh, you insult my country. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a battle. But yeah, yeah. The, the stuff is um, the stuff is fascinating. Um, and um, actually, when we got to, I think it was Aswan, because um, we went down to Thebes, you know, Luxor, Valley of the Kings, all the way down to to uh, the Temple of Philae by the dam, uh, and we went. It's called the Cataracts Hotel, and it's where Agatha Christie stayed. Oh, um, wow. I don't know whether she actually wrote any, any of uh, Death on the Nile there, but you know she went. But she went down and she stayed there. Um, tried to find out which room she was in, but I couldn't work it out. <laughs> um, are you or what events are you attending or um, participating in this year? <clears throat> um, a few, fortunately. Um, I'm going up to the Crime Rights Association uh, conference at the end of this week, go up on Friday, but that's not a, a that's just a Crime Writers uh, membership thing. Um, I'm going at the end of May, um, going to Crime Fest in Bristol. Um, I'm on a panel there. Uh, also in Capital Crime. I can't remember the date of Capital Crime. Oh, it's uh, it's moved forward. It's uh, now August. Uh, so I'm, I'm appearing on a panel at Capital Crime, which is moved from Battersea Park to a hotel quite near to St Paul's. St Paul's. Yeah. <coughs> so it sounds good. awesome, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's good. Um, that was fun last time because I was on with Imran Mahmood and Tony Kent and uh, they were great. Um, oh, Will yeah. Carver. Will Carver, who was... Oh, he's just yeah. <laughs> he, he's like a male Louise Mumford. Um, <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, uh, Crime Fest, Capital Crime. I'm doing in June on June the eighth. I'm doing the uh, Murderous Medway, which is uh, a, a panel as part of the Medway or Literary Festival. I think it's called or River Festival. Uh, it's just a, a, a one-off um, one afternoon, but that's with Lisa Cutts and um, Julie Basma, who does the Whistable Pearl. Um, that's on television now. Lisa Cutts, I've got their books here actually. Three, Lisa's three cozy crime books. She's done some um, uh, very lovely um, police procedurals as well, because she used to be, or she's not used to be an ex-cop. She is an ex-cop. So she uh, she wrote those procedurals, but now she's moved into cosy crime. <clears throat> so uh, the three of us are doing that panel uh, and then hopefully repeating that panel at your um, Brighton event in October. Yep. That should be good fun. Because uh, by then we'll have all our arguments and it'll be a nice panel. <laughs> 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 uh, I think that's it, really. Uh, capital crime, crime. I'm not going to Harrogate this year. Um, I've not appeared at Harrogate anyway. But I've always been there as you know. I've been there as the the classic um, groupie fanboy, um, seeing all how the the rural writers earn their crust, <laughs> while the rest of us are scrabbling down in the lower echelons. Uh, 
but yeah, I couldn't afford that one as well this year, so I was stuck with the uh, the two that I'm appearing or two that I'm appearing out there and your your event in Brighton. Uh, that's it. I, I mean, I'd love to go to more. I mean, if there were more out there and, and more people um, got to like my books and wanted to see me, then I'd love to do more. It's not my natural thing to be in front of a a camera. Um, one of the reasons I'm babbling so much is because nerves, really. I just kind of gush. Um, but yeah, um, it's not my forte. It's not my uh, it's not my natural habitat to be in front of people. I mean, I can. Or mine. So what possessed? Yeah, what I know. Possessed what... me to do why? It's it's actually my worst nightmare. Like seriously, what was I thinking? <laughs> and this is like the third time that I'm going to put myself up in front of people. I'm insane. Like literally, yeah. I couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> this well, is bad enough. <laughs> back in the day, I mean, you know, when I was reading books by uh, Hammond Innes and and you know, people like that, um, kind of thrillers and things. Uh, when was that? 1970s and the 1980s. It was a case that you typed away in your typewriter, you then sent it off in a big, thick, kind of padded package. Um, then it would come back saying no. But, you know, if you were a, a real writer, you'd send it off and then your editor would send stuff back and there would be this bit, a little bit of to and froing, and then they'd go, right, okay, published in two months' time, blah, 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 or whatever it was, and there, that was it. And um, occasionally, you know, the real you know the you know, Ian Fleming's and um, uh, I mean, who wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? I can't remember now. John the Carrot. John the Carrot. Yeah, keep it out of my head. I've, I've just read Agent Running in the Field. I should know that. Um, yeah, so they um, get on television occasionally uh, on the arts programs. Uh, there may be an article in the in the posh press. There'd be a poster in Smith's or wherever the books were, and that would be it. Occasionally they would talk somewhere, they would be after dinner speak or something. But now I've got to be a social media person and a Zoom person and, a, and an in-person person <laughs> when all I really want to do is sit here um, drinking coffee, eating Jaffa cakes and, um, and writing. Um, I mean, it's not that don't enjoy talking to you. It's just it's not my it's not my forte. Really. It's not my um it's not my thing of choice to, to do. You know, being being an anonymous writer sitting there in a in a, in a smoky attic. Well, I don't smoke, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Everyone thinks you got a cigarette and a, and a and a whiskey. You know, I'm going off a whiskey and I don't never smoke. So, that, but you know, but cup of tea, cup of coffee, and a jacket cake is my. Whiskey and cigarette. <laughs> yeah, sounds better. <laughs> yeah, doing that and just typing away and then don't even have to post it now. Email it in. Great. But no, you have to put yourself out there and, and constantly try and get people to know who you are because that's the hardest thing because publicizing yourself. I mean, obviously um, an agent would do a little bit, but that's not their thing. The publisher should if they're a good publisher pump it out in various formats uh and, and you know thomas and mercer amazon they've got their uh, algorithms and things and they they pump that out to people in their own way uh but 
you still got to do things like get yourself on a blog tour or interact with other authors and, and do stuff online. It's, I, I downloaded TikTok a, a couple of months ago. I haven't got a clue what's going on there. Don't look at me. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I've looked at BookTok and, and I've, I've followed people and they followed me. And the people that followed me, I think, are hoping to learn off of me. And I followed them, hoping to learn off of them. And we haven't posted because we're too, too scared to do this stuff. I mean, my, my brother's good at it. You know, he, he does stuff. He, he did this thing where there was a, a dog running backwards and forwards. So it split screens. So this dog was running that way. And when the dog ran that way, he kind of looked that way. And then the dog ran that way. And so he's, he's cut it together and he's put music on it. And I thought, one, I can't do that. And two, I haven't got time to do that. Yeah, um, I know it goes way over my head, so I have no idea. So I've limited it to, um, well, Facebook was for, fa for, for friends and family, but now it's now expanding because I've let more people in and it's now more of a an author platform as well. Um, Twitter took me a while to get into, but I've kind of got the hang of it um, and get involved in a few bits and pieces. Uh, Instagram. I still tend to go for posts rather than reels because the reels flummox me occasionally. When I have when I have tried to do it, it's gone completely haywire. So I'm gonna to have to get my brother to give me a masterclass. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm totally with you. It's honestly I understand completely. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I mean Facebook is fine. I've got Facebook and Instagram normally, but yeah, reels just why can't you just post stuff <laughs> and that's it i don't get it so totally with you no idea you know, i did do an unboxing mm -hmm. video for number two um but uh that was it really mm -hmm. and I, I just did that with my daughter she dressed up as lizzie hayes i stuck my hat on for kemba um mm -hmm. and used the um the iphone kind of um the iMovie thing where you can make it into kind of a scratchy old movie to make it look like Second World War with a, oh, with cool. a siren in the background. But that that's kind of the limit of it, really. I mean, I used to do home movies, you know, cine films and stuff and, and go on a holiday and take it like that. And then when it moved into video, did it a bit. But uh, there's so much you can do with video now. I haven't, I haven't got, I'm busy being an author. I can't learn all this stuff. I know. Apparently, if you just like do loads of interviews and go to all the festivals and have pink hair, then everyone knows who you are anyway. This ah, is what I've well, learned. Yeah. I've gone for the silver hair. <laughs> See, pink would look awesome with that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so we'll see. <laughs> Everyone would know who you were. I mean, you know, you'd be the awful with pink hair. That would be pretty memorable. <laughs> well, I could wear my uh, my Kemba hat, but then I'm straying into Terry Pratchett territory there because of his big hat. Mm. Yeah. See, pink hair is much better. It would wash out. It's fine. Oh, I do. <laughs> I shouldn't be telling you this really. Um, when I still had dark hair and lots of it, um, I, I used to, when I had time, I used to do treasure hunts for um, car treasure hunts for my friends and family. Uh, get, get, get about six or seven cars together, seven teams, and then I would do the, all these questions in this route. And on this occasion, I decided to do a little video beforehand. And um, in, Back when I did this, people still remembered Shaw Taylor from Police Five, which was the little police program that gave you a little snippet. It was a bit of the forerunner of Crime Watch, Crime Watch, uh, but it was only five or ten minutes long. Um, so I got these um, 
fake glasses because I didn't need them then. And I had the thick hair. So I, I got this stuff from the joke shop, which was, um, uh, old, it said something like old person's hair on it or something like that, or senior citizen's hair. And so I sprayed my hair gray. I got um, uh, a friend's rain Mac. And then on top of a car park, park in Tum Tunbridge Wells, uh, did this little introductory video for this treasure hunt. Um, but what I forgot was that I couldn't wash it out. I could wash it out afterwards, but there was nowhere to wash it out. So we went, then went off for lunch in a, in a roadside cafe. And I was being stared at because people could see that this hair had thick kind of spray all over it. And where I'd not quite done it, it was down by my ear and my neck. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so I do put myself into some situations that um, attract humiliation and ridicule. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Um, well, I don't have any more questions for you unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell us. Um, not on not the current ones. I mean, I've I've got um, because this this trip this trilogy this arc has, has finished. I've I've I'm having a crack at something different, which is a contemporary story. It's about uh, some uh, a group of aging lads uh kind of kind of based on on my group but i didn't want to make it our group so what i've done is i've kind of pulled bits of characters from everywhere made it into this little um story about uh uh one of their chaps dies of cancer and then says you know go out i want you to go out and live the life that i can't have go and do this stuff uh, and they do some of this stuff and then think well actually we want to do a bit of a memorial a bit like i did with james putting him in the book but they did. They decide to um, have this artifact that they they create and take it to a place where they can put it in his in his memory. Um, but in doing so, they have to address things like um, the loss that they are, they're feeling of this this uh, chap, um, and uh, how they're going to get this thing cross country because it's a bit big and heavy, and they have to wheel it, and they have to go through. So gates and over stiles and little streams and through farmers fields and so that kind of creates tension between them and then they've got um uh reminisces from from their childhood you know like various ice creams that they used to eat and, and which ones are their favorites and, and arguing about the benefits of one biscuit over another and you know banal stuff that groups of mates talk about but then there's always a bit of a and that's the, the funny part and then the, the counterpoint is that then they remember their mate and they start then to talk about how they're feeling about the fact that he's gone. Um, and then there's a, later on, there's a, a discussion about, well, you know, do, do you, um, do you check your signs for, you check yourself for signs of cancer and, and things like that. So there becomes a bit of seriousness, but at the end of that, somebody says something and then they have a go at each other. So there's a, the funny bits are always counterpoint to the, the serious stuff. But it is a bit of a crime story as well because uh, um, was the you know did the guy die naturally? Did he take his own life or was he assisted in some way? So there's this crime element in the background of mm -hmm. them responsible for their mate's death ultimately. Oh, that sounds uh, so awesome! <laughs> I'm about uh, I'm about just over sixty thousand words in, and it's going to be about eighty five, I think eighty five to ninety, but um, but. Whether my agent will like that or not, after this lot, um, <laughs> remains to be seen. 
I mean, she may want more of this, but <laughs> um, but I'm hoping so. But I'm you know I'm enjoying writing it, and uh, it's just it's it's different because it's contemporary. It's not historical, so I don't have to check my facts because it's all in here. It's a lot of it is my lived experience and those of my friends and my my contemporaries of, of the time, you know, and memories of school in the 60s and stuff like that, where they kind of just go, you know, talk about things. Um, but hopefully talk about it in a last of the summer wine kind of humorous way. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So that's it. That's That's me up to date at the moment. So before we go, would you just like to remind everyone where they can find out more about you, all those TikTok and Instagram <laughs> handles, and that where they can get your books from? Oh, blimey. Uh, it's at NeilDawes59 is uh, my Twitter handle. Um, I think it's just Neil Dawes on Instagram. Um, I've got a website, which is www.neildawes.com or .co.uk, uh, which has got all the books on there. Obviously, I'm on Amazon. It's my Amazon page there as well. Uh, come and see me at the festivals, um, because without without you lot, um, it's just me and a couple of other guys talking amongst themselves and <laughs> wind whistling through the tent as it was at Capital Crime. Uh, well, no, there was an audit to Capital Crime, but it was very windy. So yeah, um, and uh, yeah, do do check out these because uh, I'm. Yeah, that's my lifelong ambition. I'm quite proud of them. And uh, I know that um, many people, that have, well, most people that have read them have enjoyed them, apart from a couple of really strange people on Amazon. Who, yeah, you can't avoid them. They're everywhere. <laughs> who've seen, who have read completely different books. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're... <laughs> Google me, find out about me, you know, find out the good and the bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs>